Good morning. And I want to welcome you this morning and also welcome our online listeners from uh, various parts of the world. Uh, Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that our lives and our conversation will be to your glory and to your honor, that hearts will be uh, brought into unity with you and this world will be lighted and we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, Evangelism and Witnessing. And the title this week is Evaluating Witnessing and Evangelism. And if someone would read for us the memory text, which is Proverbs 25.12. Somebody read that for us, please. So what does that mean? Does that mean that valid, valid criticism should be discarded like uh, gold jewelry is? And, and not, not, not a worn? Not used? Or is it saying that gold jewelry is something considered precious and that we, and, and that it should be applied and worn and that, uh, that it can, ha- it can enhance us. And like jewelry, we should apply it and, and the valid criticism for our enhancement. What do you think the message is of the passage? Discard it, wear it. Value it. Value it. Maybe not wear it, just value it. Value it, put it in a safe for your for your retirement. There you go. Like the crown jewels in, in yeah, okay, put them in a safe for retirement. Okay, so we'll use them in retirement. Okay. Well, the question that came to my mind was what would make criticism valid? What would make criticism valid? Oh, so number one, truthfulness. That's what the first thing I had down here, truthfulness. And the next thing I had was after truthfulness was Accuracy. Now, can you, can someone be accurate without being truthful? No, you can't be. If you're accurate, you're being truthful. But can somebody be truthful without being accurate? Oh, so you notice the little difference there. You know, a person can tell honestly what they believe truthfully from their heart uh, is, is a valid criticism but they may have a misperception, they may have a misunderstanding, they may see things from a different angle, they may not have all the information that you have about the circumstance, they may be truthful about their criticism, but it might not be accurate. Possible? Yeah. Um, so what would that mean about hearing criticism of someone you trust and who you know is being very honest with you? You still have to evaluate it. Yeah, you still have to evaluate it for yourself. Just because someone's being sincere and honest and you trust them doesn't, and they're, and they're being truthful, doesn't necessarily mean that they should do your thinking for you. They may not have the perceptions and perspectives and information that you have. It might not be accurate. How about this? In order for criticism to be valid, it has to not only be truthful and it has to be accurate, it has to be pertinent or relevant. Would you say that's true as well? Can someone be pertinent without being truthful and accurate? No. If it's, if it's inaccurate and it's untruthful, it's not pertinent, right? But can someone be truthful and accurate with criticism, but the criticism not be pertinent? Any examples? How about the criticism of Elijah's bald head? It was truthful and it was accurate, but it really wasn't pertinent, was it? It was impertinent. Yeah, there you go. You see? How about not only truthful and accurate and pertinent, how about applicable or usable in order for it to be valid? Can you have criticism that is truthful and accurate and pertinent, but it's not applicable? 
It's not usable, in other words. You can't use it. Could you criticize, for instance, a venue in which a, a, an evangelistic series is going to take place as, as not being really an ideal venue? And it is true it's not, and it's, uh, and it, and it's accurate that it's not, and it's uh, pertinent because it would do better if it was somewhere else, but you don't have the resources or funds to have it anywhere else. You can't apply that criticism. Could that happen? Yeah. And then, truthful, accurate, pertinent, applicable, and how about the last one I put on my list was hearable. And what I mean by that is presented in a way that it can be understood and accepted. Could you, in fact, give a criticism that is truthful and accurate and pertinent and applicable, but present it in such a way that it's either misunderstood, offensive, or unacceptable? Okay, did y'all hear that comment? You can especially do that if you're giving criticism to the person that you, if you don't love that person, if you don't care for that person. Yeah, and so it seemed to me as I went through what makes criticism valid, that valid criticism needs to have all those elements, doesn't it? Could you think of others? Maybe I'm not, I'm not all inclusive. I might have left things out. What else, what else? Russell? Well, I think one, one further step is leaving the person that you're giving the criticism to free to just free to decide and accept accept the criticism for themselves. Okay, so it, it's more helpful to pre- in a loving manner, leaving them free to decide. Well said. It's a recurring theme in here. Yes, uh, Kathy. I think that was a pretty profound thought, just universally, that you better make sure you love somebody before you criticize them. That was very meaningful to me. How do you hear the word criticize? Do you hear that as condemning and attacking? Or do you hear that as um, uh, designed to help and uplift, to improve, to, be- to, to help somebody um, better themselves? Like a coach criticizes the swing of their, of their ball player so they'll be a, a better, a better you know, ball player. They're, they're giving criticism, cr- critiquing it. Do you hear it in that sense, or do you hear it as belittling and attacking? Yes. We, we have uh, adjectives that are added to it as in constructive criticism versus... Destructive criticism? Yeah, and do we, do we like the word critique better than criticism? Yes. <laughs> but if you love somebody, that is a really amazing way to check yourself for whether it's destructive or constructive or whether it's a critique or whether it's a put-down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Coming back to the motive of the heart. Are you doing it because you love them, or are you doing it because you need to um, defend yourself because if they're right, then you're wrong? So you need to critique, criticize them so that you don't have to take the hit. This is a constant theme in relationships. When somebody has a breakup in a relationship, oftentimes there's a devaluing process that happens. Uh, put the other person down, find fault with the other person, list all their wrongs in order to, to make the hurt not feel as hurtful. Yes, I saw a hand back here somewhere. Uh, yes. Also, you know, who the truth being shared with, because like, you know, when Jesus drew the sins of the Pharisees in the sand, he could have said them out loud for everybody to hear, and that might not have been very good, but he said it did it in a way that it was conveyed only to those individuals, and it didn't offend, you know what I mean? No, absolutely. It was designed to be helpful, protective, yeah. not injuring, not to call harm. All, calling it out at the same time. But well said. Second paragraph, it says, uh, Sometimes large sums of money are spent on witnessing and evangelism ministries that give minimal results. This has led to, led to suggested changes in budget allocations and procedures. If done with non-critical spirit, these questions can be a part of a valid, valid evaluation. We must quickly add, however, 
that we really don't know the full results of any specific program because we can focus only upon tangible results, such as the numbers of people being baptized, and are unaware uh, as to what extent gospel seeds have been sown. Nevertheless, there is still the need to, eva- to evaluate in a way that involves making judgments, but abstains from being judgmental. And I had some thoughts about this. First off, what constitutes, in your mind, minimal results? She said few baptisms. Well, you know, I guess would it depend on the purpose of the ministry? Few conversions. Few conversions. Few conversions. So, so I guess we should ask, in order to, to determine minimal results, we first have to ask, what is it that will be the standard that we're measuring our results by? So we've suggested here conversions and baptisms are, are a measuring stick. Are there other measuring sticks you might want to use? Yes, Russell. I was just thinking about the purpose of Christ's ministry, and you look at you look at the um, look at what he gave up, and and the quote price that he paid for taking on humanity, and he would have done it for one conversion, for one baptism. So that, that I think that kind of puts things in perspective, or should put things in perspective for us. So, what would be the purpose of why he did it then? For because it was the right thing to do. Yes. Oh doing what was right because it's right, even if someone else doesn't respond? Wait, wait a minute. Or should we be doing what we're doing to get other people to respond? Are those the same thing? Getting other people to respond isn't our job. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's job. Well said. Well said. Getting other people to respond is not our job. Our job is to present, as Russell said already, truth and love, leaving people free. But one measure, is, is, which is classic historic, is converts. Another measure, donations. Isn't this a, isn't this a measure? And then, and I listed some others I, uh, here. I, I put um, letters or emails of support and appreciation. Communication, verbal communication, whether it's in person or letters or emails, telling you how much you've, you've, you've helped somebody. Um, TV or radio ratings, if you're, if you're on a broadcast media of some kind. This is a common measure, isn't it? And numbers of hits on a website. These are common measures, aren't they? And I thought about that, and I thought, can you have success in all of these areas without actually working for God's kingdom? I was thinking of pro sports teams, movie stars, music idols, and, and they, they succeed in everything. They get lots of converts to their, to their cause. They get, they get lots of money. They get uh, all these emails and letters and ratings and web hits and probably more than most gospel ministries do. Are they promoting the kingdom of God? So, so while these measures may not be invalid, are they necessarily the best measure? So, are there other measures besides those to consider? What else would you consider, Wendell? How active you get a good number of people to be part of that same mission. So, like the UT Vols have 105,000 come every week. So that's, yeah, 105,000 rabid screaming fans every week. I haven't seen a church with that much intensity, have you? Yeah. I agree with you, though. We need to have people on board. Lisa. Jim and I are old enough to remember when Sabbath school class, uh, they started Sabbath school class with a little check thing, and they'd say, how many literature, how much literature did you distribute, and how many people did you visit, and what did you do? Every single Sabbath, they had this little checklist. Anybody remember Jasper Wayne? Boy, I'm really digging back into the dustpins of uh, Adventist history, aren't I? Yes. Remember Jasper Wayne? We did in-gathering. Yeah, you had to have how many dollars? 
$130 of donations. You can get your Jasper and a little, I think it was a purple ribbon you put in your Bible. Remember the saints would come with all their ribbons for years after year after year, all lined up in their Bible sticking out? I remember this as a kid. Anybody else or is it just me? <laughs> just me. My memory's uh, Everybody else has forgotten. <laughs> oh, she still has her Jasper Wayne ribbon. Wow. Bring that. That'd be like, you know. Another one. Okay. It's a red one. Okay. Good for you, Margaret. Um, what about measuring the quality of the message itself? What are we actually taking? What is the message we're sharing? Is that a measure we should look at? Yeah. That's the measure, he said. How about um, the impact it has on changing, transforming people's lives? Whether they convert and become part of the organization, or whether they don't, but you see their life change. For the better, yes. Or for the worse, you can use that as a measuring stick that way too. Sure, yeah. Do people become less fearful? Do they love others more? Are they kinder? Are they gentler? Do they help? Are they more altruistic? Kathy? We ran this discussion on the way up here this morning, and... And in my mind, I always grew up with the idea that evangelism was about presenting and defending the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and getting people into, baptized, part of, and donating to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But if the true gospel is that God is love, then, like you're saying, should our evangelism be spent more towards demonstrating, teaching what healthy, functional, true love looks like so that people are comfortable with that concept. That's what's going to make them comfortable in heaven. That's what's going to attract them to God. I think it's well said. So you were asking the question, is there a difference between converting people to the kingdom of God and converting people to an institution on earth? Okay, And I think that's well said, and I think our goal, our passion, is to convert people to God's true kingdom, the kingdom of love, and practice his methods in their life every day, and let the Holy Spirit decide where that individual will go and be a minister for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs people everywhere. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to take every person that works for him and put him in one organization and leave the rest of the world devoid of people that know the truth, do you think? No, the Holy Spirit needs people everywhere. So I, I think it's, I don't know, I think it's maybe narrow-minded or small-minded to think that everybody needs to join the same organization to be on God's side. Am, am, I, am I missing something? Or No, okay, yeah, thank you. Yes. Billy Graham was an outstanding example of just talking about God's love and, you know, your behavior and things like that. And I thought, he didn't talk doctrine, he just zeroed in on, on the soul, I felt at least. And uh, he did a wonderful job. Uh, in Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, Evaluation will take place whether we realize it or not. Evaluation is being undertaken every Sabbath and in every public meeting. People evaluate the content, clarity, and even the length of the sermon, and those who attend public meetings expect a high level of professionalism. And I read that, and, and the question popped into my mind. If you wrote that sentence, would, would you have f- filled in the blank that those who attend public meetings expect a high level of blank would you put in professionalism is that what you would have put in that sentence how about honesty high level of honesty high level of integrity high level in sincerity she said truthfulness christ likeness how about high level of christ likeness um how about a high level of something real not something performed high level of caring about the people being spoken to now if you, do you think that if you would have heard the prophets or the apostles preach 
back in their day, you would have uh, written down that that was a really professional presentation. No, I'm, no, I'm not criticizing professionalism at all. I'm not criticizing that. I'm a medical professional. We work very hard, as you know, here in our ministry to, to put on the highest uh, standards and present the message as professionally as possible. I, I just think that this is, is a good thing. It's just, is it the number one thing? It, it, I just don't think it's number one. Uh, can you have a professional presentation that doesn't present the truth? Yeah. And he, could professional presentations even mislead? So, it seems to me, and the reason I bring this up is because I don't want any of you in here to think that you need to wait for professional training or a professional opportunity for you to share the gospel. You don't need to be a professional. You don't need to be a professional speaker. You don't need to be a professional um, you know, lecturer or anything like this. Uh, when the Holy Spirit brings the truth to your heart and mind, and you, opens a, an opportunity for you to share, I want you to feel comfortable going out and sharing. Don't let this idea, well, I have to have professional, I have to have all this stuff before I can do it. No, you don't. You have to have a conviction, a love for God, a love for other people, a knowledge of his kingdom, and a willingness. That's what you have to have, seems to me. Yes, Wendell. A couple of instances in the Bible in which we have people who were converted who are actually working for the kingdom. You think of the disciples when they were sent out. Judas was among that group. You know, they, they performed healings and miracles and, and displayed the gospel, and yet here you had um, Judas. Also, it appears that Peter was not converted until after the, the Gethsemane experience. That's right. So he too was part of that group. And then later on, you had other situations in which. There was not conversion in it, with people going out and doing that. So Paul talks about in Rome where people were, for malicious reasoning, spreading the gospel, and yet it was being forwarded by the grace of God to people who needed to hear the truth. And so um, not only do we not need to be professional, but we can accept anyone's effort as long as it's in the direction of God's kingdom. I, I agree completely. Well said. Um, Read uh, the second paragraph. It says, uh, when God's word sets a standard, expects or prescribes specific action, or issues a command, our responses are open to evaluation. I think there's truth in that, but but before we, we evaluate our responses, I had a question. Do you think before we evaluate our responses to his standards, would it be important to first evaluate God's standards, directions, and commands? Or should we just say, God said it, I do it, that settles it. Well, if you're not sure, let's look at some commands. What about the command not to cook a kid in its mother's milk? Should we evaluate that one? Or stone a child for cursing his parents? Should we, st- should we, should we just go out and do that? How many parents have had a child badmouth them? Should we stone them? Should we evaluate that command? Women not being allowed to speak in church, should we evaluate that command? Women being subordinate to their husbands. Using tithe to buy fermented wine to drink and rejoice before the Lord. Should we evaluate that command? Or should we just evaluate our response to the command? In uh, the New Testament, Paul gives certain qualifications for deacons and elders. And if you read those qualifications, he says in a couple of places that they should not be given to too much wine. 
And then he tells Timothy later that he should drink a little wine for his stomach. Should we evaluate these instructions or just have a periodic libation? I mean, yes, we need to evaluate our responses, but we also need to understand the purpose, the times, the settings, the instruction, who it was for, what it's about, the principles behind it. Um, I think we get in terrible danger as believers when we simply say, well, you know what my Bible says, and I do it. Don't think, don't ask questions, just just do it. And thoughts about this? I thought that raised more discussion in here. <laughs> we agree. Okay. The next... Um, The last paragraph reminds us of our commission, instruction, to take the gospel to the entire world. Um, If you were Satan, would you try to infect the gospel message with distortion so that people are actually taking a, a distorted gospel to the world, thinking they're taking the true gospel? How can we present the gospel in a modern world so that people want to hear it becomes relevant? When I was in Germany last week in our, in our discussion, I asked the question, in Germany, how do you guys share the gospel to a society that by and large is agnostic? It's not like America. Most Americans believe in God still. In Germany, most either don't believe in God um, or, or you know, believe in evolution. Um, how, how, do you, how do you share the gospel to make that relevant? And it was an interesting discussion. How do we share the gospel to wake people out of their lethargy of the routines of life that they're stuck in. What do you think? We also are in a culture that believes they already know the gospel. Uh, we're in a gospel. That's true. We're in a culture that believes they know the gospel to a certain degree. Yeah. Of degree, there's not a willingness to listen because I've already heard that and discarded that, or heard that and I know that, or. So with that with that insight, then what would be an approach that we might be able to reach them? If somebody believes that they're well when they're really sick, or they're taking the medicine that helps them, but the medicine they're taking, as a doctor, you ever have patients come in and they've got a problem, but they think they've already, they're already treating the problem, but what they're giving themselves is placebo, it doesn't really help the problem at all? Have you never had this? Maybe as an orthopedic you, a surgeon you don't because it's pretty obvious and a bone's sticking out. It's not fixed. <laughs> but, as, but as a psychiatrist, I have many people who think they're addressing the problem when they're not. And I know in primary care, uh, many people will buy over-the-counter herbal stuff and this, that, and the other think they're addressing the problem. And some of those things can help, but a lot of them don't. Well, Dr. Markham uh, and HeartWise Ministries has teamed up with our ministry to present the gospel uh, in, uh, about God's kingdom of love, showing the scriptures and science harmony. How they harmonize uh, the principles of, of medical science and the principles of biblical teachings have a harmony. Our first uh, seminar, Modern Medicine, Biblical Technology in the Brain, is this October. And, uh, and we think that this is a way that people, that reaches the people where they are, where they live each day. People want to know how to live healthier, how to keep their brains healthy. And to be able to show that all these things actually have their root back in God's design and the way he built life to run is a way to, I think, help make it meaningful to them today. Much of the gospel that people think they have is sometimes called pie-in-the-sky gospel. It is for my eternal, it's my eternal insurance. It's for the next life. Right now, well, I still have to struggle it out and fight it out on my own. I've accepted the blood of Jesus, the payment, my behalf, my medical, my heavenly records are, are stamped, uh, forgiven, and, and I've got eternal security, but right now, uh, I don't really figure how that works. And we're wanting to show that what Christ promised was what? 
an abundant life. That you might have life and have it abundantly here and now. Harmonizing with his methods changes us here now, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, over here. I think we need to first uh, begin with the gospel making sense. Uh, A lot of the ways I've heard the gospel presented, it doesn't make any sense at all when you really continue it to its final conclusion. But it has to make sense. I agree with you. I agree with you. Do you know, though, that in, it not only does it not make sense to many people, but many people believe a gospel that's not supposed to make sense. Well, God's ways aren't my ways. He's infinite. I'm finite. I can't understand that. We just take that on faith. If you have faith, you don't ask questions. And so they're indoctrinated with this, this line after line, idea after idea, thought after thought that just piles up in their head that diminishes the willingness to even have a sensible gospel. And you have to also address and deconstruct those things. Have you ever heard some of those ideas? Yeah. Some people even believe it's a lack of faith for it to make sense. Some people even have told me, I've had more than one, many in fact, tell me that if it makes sense, if you have evidence for it, then it's not faith anymore. It's only faith if it's nonsense. If you can't understand it. Yeah, that, 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 if you understand it, it makes sense, if it's evidence-based, well then you don't need faith. You need faith for the stuff you can't understand, it's nonsense. And that that's part of God's character because he does keep stuff from us. Yeah, then this is how, exactly, it all meshes back there as well. Uh, Monday's lesson, first paragraph, it says uh, we are to, um, while there are many benefits to evaluation, there are some pitfalls that we must be aware of and avoid. If we are overly active in evaluation and focus mostly on the negatives, there is the potential to create a critical environment that will discourage and decrease your pool of volunteers. So I want you guys to know I thank all of you. I appreciate all of you very much. No criticism at all. Seriously. Now, this ministry wouldn't go on without uh, people who want to come and participate and listen and share and tell us about it. And so I, I want to thank each one of you, not just the people holding the mics, but uh, all of you that come and, and, and study each week and participate in the discussion. Because we're a team working together. The lesson asks us to read Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What are your thoughts about the idea of meeting together? Is it a good thing to meet together? What are the benefits of coming and meeting together, as you understand them? As it mentions, encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. It's not for my benefit benefit of those who I share that meeting. I, I like that. Very well said. So we encourage each other. Any specific ways we encourage each other? Any healing ways we encourage each other? I, I personally have experienced having made mistakes in life and stumbled and fallen that meeting together with people who still love me is healing and redemptive. And we are to be a, a people who love each other in our struggles and are willing to not pick up stones and stone those who have stumbled and make mistakes, but help each other continue on that process of recovery and development. And so a loving atmosphere where we encourage each other to continue on in God's grace rather than condemn each other when mistakes made, I find very, very uh, healing. Jim. Well, you know, it was interesting how you just mentioned how, you know, all these things prove we have scientific evidence behind it. But we also have scientific evidence now that meeting together actually improves our chemistry. 
you know, as, as a cardiologist, I see myself as treating symptoms. I don't really heal. But we now know that when people come together and love each other and serve each other and make each other laugh and smile and feel good and take care of each other's needs at whatever level, physical, mental, emotional, we help change their chemistry. We can actually measure their adrenaline, their cortisol levels, their inflammatory proteins. We now can do PET scans in the brain, which showed the brain neurons changing. So now there's chemical evidence. What God says a meeting together has some great benefit for all of us um, in more ways than, than we think. Now you notice what you described, meeting together to support each other, laugh together, love each other. Uh, but how about if we meet together to argue, to criticize, to gossip about, to run each other down? Well, th- can we get chemical changes there too? Absolutely. And what, which, which, way, which direction do they go? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, no, they, they clearly occur. I have patients, believe it or not, I have patients that go to churches where the pastor from the pulpit calls out sinners <laughs> publicly, uh, uh, calls them down. You have been cheating on your wife. You have been looking at porn and, and this kind of stuff right from the pulpit and just humiliates them uh, in the church. And, and this is very destructive. Can you imagine Jesus doing something like this? No, as was said earlier, he wrote in the sand, protected reputations. Another um, benefit of meeting together is getting other people's ideas. We don't just have our self-centered ideas. So we have, so we have the benefit of loving each other, which was stated. Now we have the benefit of growing an understanding that, that, that people can see things from different perspectives, give us new ideas to study, contemplate. We can go home and study. So are, we grow mentally, intellectually, by meeting together as well. Okay? How about pooling the resources to, to, for purpose for ministry? That we can do more as a group for ministry than we can as a single person, unless you're Bill Gates. <laughs> okay? <laughs> yes, let's all hand over here. You mentioned before that uh, love can't exist in isolation. So if, uh, if you're by yourself, you're really not loving. <laughs> well said. Well said. So, so the, the next question then is, what is it that obstructs, hinders, undermines people from meeting together in such a way on a regular basis, coming to church, coming to class? What, what undermines that? Pride. Pride. Another way to say pride is selfishness, right? And I would put with that fear. Because pride is a reaction to fear. I won't, I won't be recognized. I won't you know, be appreciated. And, and so l- let's look at that, that pride, that, that selfishness, that fear aspect. How about fear of getting hurt? Fear of rejection? Fear of embarrassment? Fear of being gossiped about? Fear of being laughed at? Fear of not being loved? Do these fears keep people from coming? Oh, they sure do. Um, how about the, the, the pride aspect? Having anger, resentment, hurts over mistreatment or failure to be acknowledged or valued or appreciated. You're angry at how you've been treated at a place. Or... How about being actively expelled or rejected by by the group, told not to come? When I was uh, at, when I was uh, at uh, Fort Stewart as the chief of psychiatry at Win Army Hospital, I was a major in the army at the time. And in the military base, there was there's no Adventist church in Hinesville, Georgia. There's 50 miles to the closest Adventist church. They have military chapels on base that are non-denominational um, that are used for all the different services. And the Adventists had a little program that ran on Sabbath morning for the military soldiers that the church 50 miles away would send some people out that can help out with. And it was about well, maybe 15 to 20 people would meet there each week. It was a small little gathering of people. And we would have a discussion each week and 
And they had no musicians, so they had a, a Baptist lady who lived in the community would come out and play the piano each week so we could sing some songs together and so forth. And I remember one uh, Sabbath we were having a discussion on Matthew chapter 5 where at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount talks about he did not come to change the law but come to fulfill the law. And the person leading out who was non-military um, you know, talked about how the Sabbath had not been changed and looked at this lady who worships on Sunday and was wor- uh, playing the the piano for us each week and told about how that she was sinning because she was uh, keeping Sunday and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so I intervened and talked about her love, how she is Christ-like and coming to give her time to help us and, and showing that Christ's love and sacrifice and, and how it was very, very um, you know, harsh and, and uh, very pharisaical to be so condemning and so forth and so on. And uh, the little lady who organized the thing, who also was not military, told me that I was Satan and I wasn't welcome there anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. And, and I'm, I'm the only. I'm the military person on the military base. <laughs> Going to the military. Job. I'm not welcome there anymore. I found this quite quite um, amusing, actually, and, and diagnostic. Truly, it was. I mean, if you observe what happened, this was diagnostic. Um, I, I didn't leave, by the way. <laughs> you know me better than that. So, but. Um, but these kind of things can happen where people can actually tell you you're not welcome. Don't come back. How about other reasons that are obstructing people from coming? How about lack of relevance to their life? Whatever is being presented at the group is irrelevant to them, or at least they don't find relevance in it. Could that happen? Yeah. How about believing that the church is primarily about saving you? And if you believe church is primarily about saving you, then why go? Because you've already taken care of that. Your salvation is secure. You accepted Jesus as your Savior. Um, you don't need to go anymore. You just do home church. But this is a lie. As, as Wendell said, church is primarily, primarily not about saving you. Church is about you ministering to others, you being equipped for ministry so that you can then be a giver to help other people. That's what it's primarily about, enabling and equipping you to share and help other people. And you notice the difference in orientation. The one idea that keeps you away is a self-oriented idea. It's about saving me. I've got to get saved. The other idea that keeps you going is, I- I've got people to help. It's an other-centered view. God's kingdom of love. We help other people. Wednesday's lesson. The Bible passage at the top, 1 Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at, the, at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I know you've all heard this before. Uh, the question is, how do we apply this passage? How do we apply it? First, to yourself. How do you apply it to yourself? Let me give some examples. Do you judge yourself more by outward appearance or by the heart? You study in school, prepare, do your honest best, but you get a C on your final grade. How do you judge yourself? As a winner or a failure? By the outward appearance or by the heart? Uh, you train diligently for a race. You do your best. You eat well. You, you, you practice regularly. And you come in last place at the race. How do you judge yourself? By your heart or by the outward appearance? If you're a parent... You did all you knew how to do for your children. Your heart orientation has always been for their good. But they grew up to, 
to leave the church or let you down. How do you judge yourself? By your heart's orientation to do best or by the outward appearance? Are we at peace with ourselves knowing that our heart motives are surrendered to God and seeking his will? Or do we judge ourselves as failing if events we can't control don't turn out the way we want them to? Do you usually apply this passage in this way? Should we? Are we judging our hearts or are we judging ourselves by the outward appearance? Second, how do you apply this to others? How do you apply this to others? Do we judge others by heart motive or by outward appearance? How they dress, which day of the week they worship on, eating at restaurants on Sabbath, wearing jewelry, or perhaps, how about the other side of that coin, following Christ, preaching the gospel, seeking to raise funds to help the poor and the needy, you know, like Judas did. Do we judge by the outward appearance? Or by the heart. This is why we don't judge others, because it's right. We don't know the heart of anybody else, do we? Mm -mm. And we barely, oftentimes, don't even know our own. What Jeremiah 17, the human heart is wicked above all things, uh, deceitful above all things, and utterly wicked. And we, we, we lie to ourselves. We trick ourselves frequently. Why do we do that? Because we don't want to see the defects of our own hearts. Because we have some idea, if we don't see it, it's not there. That's like having a tumor, and believing if you don't go for an MRI, then the tumor will go away. Finding the tumor on MRI doesn't put it there. It puts you in a position to get rid of it. Looking inward, through God's grace, with the Holy Spirit enlightening your mind, doesn't create problems. It opens the, the, it helps diagnose the problem so you can finally have a solution. Last paragraph says, how do we as sinners in need of divine grace ourselves evaluate something as intangible as the spirituality of others? The fact is that there is no documented spiritual scale against which we can evaluate personal spirituality. It is therefore more appropriate and profitable to consider whether each believer is on a spiritual journey rather than to determine at what point he or she is, is on that journey. Indications of spiritual journey are are the spiritual disciplines in which we become involved. And they have a list of Bible texts right above that. And that list of Bible texts, if you haven't looked them up, says things like this. Watch and pray. Surrender the mind to the Spirit. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Study the Word of God and delight in His law. These are the spiritual disciplines. Now, I looked at those and I asked the question, could someone watch and pray and study the Bible, and claim salvation, and claim to be surrendered to God's will, and be promoting God's law and still be lost. I think of the the Pharisees, those who put Christ on the cross, claimed all of these things. So, while I think there's the, the, the lesson is pointing us in the right direction, I questioned the, the measuring stick they used as spiritual disciplines. Those are all behavioral. They're all behavioral. Things we can do or say. First Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, she said. Can you think of other measuring sticks to evaluate whether someone's on that spiritual journey? Yes, way in the back. I have a question from one of the 
from Eugene. He said, uh, if, we, if we say that we don't know what's in a person's heart, do we run the risk of excusing sin? Um, only if you believe by saying we don't know what's in another person's heart that that person's sinless. Isn't it already an assumption that all of us are born in sin and conceived in iniquity? Every one of us since Adam is in a condition we can't heal. We're all in a condition that it's terminal and we need a, the same solution. So by not judging what's in their heart, I don't see how we're excusing sin because we already acknowledge we're all in a condition in need of salvation. Unless you're judging that that person somehow is outside the rest of us and doesn't need that salvation. Well, they're perfect. They don't have any problems. They don't have any issues. I don't think we ever do that, do we? No. I was thinking about things like this. Do they love others more than themselves? Are they tolerant of differences or intolerant? This is a big one. Huge one in our society. Are we willing to to allow other people to, quote, sin in our mind, they're sinning, and love them anyway? Can you love the homosexual? The homosexual in America, Christianity, is the leper of of 2,000 years ago. The outcast, the untouchable, the rejected and cursed of God. And how did Christ treat them? Everyone. Everyone that that wanted healing anyway and came. Um, Do we leave others free? Romans 14.5, present the truth and love, leave others free. Or will we bring coercive pressure to bear? And, other, and freedom doesn't mean just the coercive pressure of legislation and law. Freedom in relationships mean that you don't punish them relationally, that you don't pout, you don't hold it against them, you don't refuse to, to care for them, you don't have a hostile, angry attitude toward them. You actually present the truth, and you're going to love them. It's up to them. Hey, you know what? I really, really don't want you, my brother... To smoke, buddy. Don't smoke. But if you do, I'm going to love you anyway. It's just you're going to be the one that's going to be damaged by that. My love for you won't change. What will change is your health. You see? Yeah. Do we do we do that, or do we? Well, if you smoke, I'm I'm never going to speak. I'm not going to talk to you till you quit. Don't hang out with me. Do do we treat do we treat the fallen with grace and compassion and love? Do they gossip or protect reputations? This is more tangible to me than whether they do a Bible study at home every day. Whether they go to prayer meeting every week. Do they seek to help people or do they seek to keep rules? What picture of God are they revealing? Do they live in harmony with God's testable laws? I mean, these to me are more tangible measures of people on the journey. Yes. Are they teachable? Thank you. I want to put that one on here. Do they, are, are they open to advancing and unfolding truth? Or have they closed their mind that, that they have it and there's nothing else new to learn? I, I love that. Thursday's lesson. It says, the very reason why our church exists is the reason why we evaluate 
We believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been raised up at this particular time in Earth's history as part of God's plan to take the gospel to the world. In other words, we exist to win souls for the kingdom. I thought, how are we doing? It's about evaluation. How are we doing? And I thought, let's let's step back for a minute and, and let's look at some lessons from Jewish history, the Jewish nation. What was the calling of the Jewish nation? What was their mission? In, in, in one sentence, the overriding purpose was to what? Okay, I, I would say that would be true. Sure. Uh, I was a little more earthly focused than that at the moment, but I was thinking prepare the world for the Messiah's first advent, but, which is po- focusing on the character of God. Sure. But pre- weren't, they, weren't their mission primarily to prepare the world, the whole world, be a witness to all nations to prepare the Messiah's coming? Wasn't that the mission? What's the mission of the Adventist church? To prepare the world for the second coming by revealing, of course. I mean, the the nation was to reveal the truth about God's character so that when Christ came, they would recognize him and love him. They were preparing the world for his his arrival by teaching the truth about God. And what's the mission for the Adventist church? To prepare the world for the second advent of the Messiah by doing the same thing. What did God give the nation of Israel to help them achieve that mission? You're going to love this. You're going to love this. Right. Prophetic messages. Prophetic messages. The Sabbath. Health message. So they'd be healthy. Healthy minds, healthy bodies. Blessings of tithes and offerings. The the practice of being a giver. Um, The sanctuary message. The object lesson to teach a school system. To educate. Well, what does God give in the Adventist church to help with their mission? What, prophetic message, the Sabbath, the health message, a blessing of tithes and offerings, sanctuary message, school system. Wow. How did the Jewish nation do? How are we doing? Now, and I want to be specific. What was the problem with the Jewish nation? What got in their way? What was in the way? What was the thing that tripped them up? Yes. Well, the their picture of God, they, they misunderstood all the, the tools that God gave them. Yes, and what was it that tripped them up that caused them to distort the picture of God? I'm going to... There's a, there's a, here's a quote from a particular Bible commentator. You can find this in a, a, um, a journal called uh, Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. And this is what it says. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions. And God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of earth, Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was the living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish this work. The only way in which he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. So what was the the, the stumbling block that caused them to draw these distorted views about God? Misunderstanding God's law. Examples. Sabbath burdened by human rules so that when Christ healed on Sabbath, they wanted to stone him. Example, failure to treat all men equal, they were bigoted and thought the Jews were somehow better than the non-Jews and they wouldn't help the Samaritan who was fallen. Example, Korban, uh, dedicating your money to the church 
uh, when you die, so you get to keep it and not help your, your parents as you dishonor your mother and father. Willingness to pull an animal out of a ditch on Sabbath, but not help a human. Well, and I'm going to get to you in a second, Wendell. I just want to tie this last piece together. We'll come back. And that is, is there anything interfering with the mission of our church in taking the gospel to the world that parallels this history? Is our problem similar in misunderstanding God's law? This is out of Great Controversy, page 582. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering the battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fables and tradition. And what has happened other than accepting this idea that God's law is like an imperial Roman imposed set of rules that we must obey or we'll get punished? And rejecting the truth that God's law is the law of love upon which he created his universe to operate. We are the same problem. We've misunderstood God's law, and thus we've misunderstood his character. And all the blessings he's given us has been filtered through the wrong lens of an imposed law construct. And therefore, instead of being blessings, they become cursings. And the Sabbath to the Jews, rather than a blessing, was a curse. And the Sabbath to many Adventists becomes a a, a day of legalistic obligation with rules and fear of punishment if you should, you know, know, do something. You let the water get above your knees before sunset. Um, Something. Don't go out and, and buy food on Sabbath. I mean, it, it, people fear this. They live in fear on the Sabbath of tripping up and falling rather than having it be the day of greatest delight and joy because they've misunderstood the character of the law and thus the character of the lawgiver. Wendell. To some degree, a little bit of that, and that is the law is a law of love. When the children of Israel focused on themselves, this was all about themselves. So the law of love is the focus on others. That's exactly right. And so consequently, if your evaluation or if your focus is on your behavior or your whatever you're getting out of whatever, you obviously do not have the conversion to the law of God, which is the law of love. You know, well said, and I read this morning in another place, I don't have the quote in front of me, where Ellen White said that this idea, when we focus on ourselves, we start piling up human rules and traditions and exactions to try to conform our behavior. And, 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 and human rule and tradition piles upon human rule and tradition because we're trying to save ourselves by human works. It's only when we accept Jesus Christ, his love, his principles, and, and, and turn towards helping others that we stop trying to, to that, that these human tradition rules fade away. They become less important. They're not, they're not necessary. Because the heart is changing. But we can't change the heart, so we try to give ourselves rules to control the heart. And that's where all this comes from. Other thoughts about this, yes? I think it's important for us to keep in mind, too, with the law and being other-centered. I understand that. I think that's a good concept. But I think sometimes we just, that we make a, a, an inappropriate break between doing what's good for us and doing what's good for others. I think what's good for us and what's good for others are the same thing. Right is right, and it benefits other people, and it benefits me at the same time. And I think sometimes when we make that false break there, we feel like, oh, if it's not harming me, or if I'm not 
sacrificing. And in a way, that's true. But even my sacrifices today are in my own best interest if they're in the best interest of someone else. And I think we need to keep that balance in mind. Sometimes we can act on other people's behalf that's not really good for them. And I think right is right always. And it's good for me and it's good for you. Yeah, I think I, I, I think that it, that we don't see that as clearly as we need to see that. And I think we see it, for instance, if you were thinking, you know what, I'm going to exhale to give the trees some carbon dioxide and help them out. Well, doing that's very good for you too. You know, not holding your holding your breath isn't very good. Well, that's a very simplistic example, but it, I think there, that that is God's principle the way He designed things. Whenever you are truly in harmony with His methods and principles, giving of yourself to bless others, it is always good for you. Yeah. In the eternal reality, in the short term, it may appear not to be good for you. Uh, it may not be good on the short term to you know get thrown in a lion's den. It may not appear so good. Well, he got delivered, so that turned out really good. It may not be so good to get uh, uh, crucified upside down like Peter. In the short term, throw yourself on a hand grenade. Yeah, uh, things like this. It may not in the short term be good. But in the eternal realities of things, for your soul, for your character's purposes, then, of course, it is always good to be living that way. And this is the battle that we struggle with between that wired motive to protect self and that transforming principle working in our heart to love others more than self. And that's that battle we struggle with. And in Revelation twelve eleven, describing those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Something has changed where they actually aren't seeking to protect themselves, they're seeking to love others. Even, even to the point of they're not trying to protect themselves from dying. That is not human nature. That is not our natural instinct. That is not how my heart automatically wants to work. I promise if somebody came in and started shooting a gun, maybe some of you wouldn't, but most of us would be looking out looking for cover. Now, if you love somebody a whole lot, like your child's with you, you'll throw your body over your child over your wife. If you don't love them a whole lot, you'll be trying to hide behind them. <laughs> Am I right or wrong here? I mean, this is the reality. And this is, this is where love casts out fear. And love is the only power to free us from this. And that love doesn't, isn't something we can work for. It's something received and, and experienced in Jesus Christ. Um, Tuesday's lesson, we'll jump back and finish up with Tuesday's lesson. Positive, uh, the, the bottom paragraph says, if I'm in the right place here, um, the bottom paragraph refers to Jesus' critiquing of the Pharisees' evangelism that they made converts twice the sons of hell. What was it about their evangelism that did this? What were they doing that caused people to be more tied to Satan's kingdom after conversion than they were before? Were they teaching the wrong day of worship? The wrong foods to eat? Uh, the the wrong sacrifices to bring to sanctuary. Were they teaching them in ev- uh, the theories of evolution? Were they teaching them not to pray? Not to read scripture? So what was the root problem that enslaved the minds of these people deeper into Satan's kingdom? They were teaching them what we read earlier, particularly that God would use his power to free them and punish the Romans. And God uses his power to force his way, inflict torment, torture, death, and that if you and punishes those who disagree with him. And when we accept this view of God, we become twice the son of hell as before. 
This is what I think is going on. In the, in the uh, above, uh, the very top in the dark section, it says, read the following verses and then keep, keeping in mind the context of this uh, week's whole, and the whole quarter, answer the questions that follow. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I have commanded you today for your good. Question. Let's just break it down. What does it mean to fear the Lord your God? Reverence. Any others? Respect. Admiration. Awe. Does it mean to be terrified he's going to kill you if you mess up? No, it doesn't mean that. And if, it, and if you get that idea in your head, if you know somebody who is terrified that God will torture them and punish them if they mess up, then this is, this is harmful to their mind, harmful to their health, harmful to their well-being, harmful to their spirituality, harmful to their growth, it impairs love. No, it does mean to be amazed, overwhelmed, awed, respect, admire God, be humbled by him. What does it mean to walk in his ways? Follow his rules? I like what she said. Live his, your life as he did, as Christ did. Why? Why, why should we do that? And what, what does it mean to walk in his ways and why should we? What happens if we don't? What will God do to us if we say, forget it. I don't want anything to do with your ways. I like my ways better. What will God do? I was just going to say, if we're not convinced that his ways are best and that they bring the most uh, love and happiness to our lives, it, then following those ways don't really benefit us. Ultimately, on the superficial level, they could still have a superficial benefit if we, if we eat the healthy foods. And, but in the character, the character won't develop if we're doing it with a resentful attitude. And if we're doing it with a resentful and bitter attitude, we actually fire the negative circuits of the brain. We cause inflammatory cascades. Our health, uh, our health uh, is undermined, physical and mental. So even if we're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, we don't get the ultimate benefit. Yes. No, there's, there's truth, truth in that. So why do we do it? What does God do to us if we say, I don't want your ways, I'm going to do it my way? He lets us go, so, well then why not go out and have fun? Why not go out and just party on the world? Because God's laws are the design protocols for life. Satan's power, two, Satan has power in two places. One are the lies that he tells that we believe, but the other power Satan has is in getting you to break God's law. Let me give you an example. If someone holds your head under water, holding you under, the law of respiration is a design protocol for life, and it is non-compromising. In that position, you, unaided, cannot get around God's law. Underwater, there is power over you. You need someone to provide you an air source, or you're going to die. Satan has power over us as he gets us to be out of harmony with God's law. God's law is not compromising. It's the way he built things to run and we're out of harmony. It is destructive and we can't fix it. So we need two things from Christ. We need the truth to destroy the lies to win us to trust. And we need a new nature that we could not develop ourselves. And Christ provides that for us. 
Those, and this is why we walk in his ways. Because we trust him, and when we do it, we want to harmonize with his principles. We don't want to put ourselves out of harmony with the way God designed things, because we know when we do, it's destructive to us, and God will cry over us, and he'll plead with us, and he'll try to reach out to us, and he'll send us an air source, and, and a savior, and all this other stuff. But in the end of the day, if we stay out of harmony with his laws, it destroys us, and we die. And he can't, help us. And he can't stop us without making us a robot. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are so amazing. You love us so much. Your methods are so wonderful. Help our minds appreciate them more. Help our, our, our characters to be assimilated into, into your character, Lord, that we would be like you, loving your methods, practicing your principles, and, and understanding your kingdom, that we can share this with others. Bless our Sabbath school class. Bless our, our, our friends around the world who are participating and sharing this message in their community. Open avenues for it to go forward. Hold back the, the, the forces that would want to undermine and, and stop this healing message. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.